Well, welcome back to uh, this continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We are in chapter 2 today. We're going to start at verse 3. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessing and presence on our time together. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints the best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Philippians chapter 2 in this wonderful, albeit brief letter by the Apostle Paul, and we're going to start at verse 3. That's where we left off last week, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, where Paul writes these words, "'Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves.'" Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, just a reminder that when Paul wrote these epistles, um, there were no chapter divisions, and that is particularly true when we come to the letters. This is true also in the Gospels. The Gospels were written without the chapter divisions. The chapters were added in the Middle Ages to help people who were studying the Scriptures um, take them in bite-sized pieces. But when it comes to these letters, sometimes we get the impression that Paul was separating different arguments or different ideas out, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, the way Paul's mind worked was that one idea, one concept, inevitably flowed into the next, and sometimes the chapter divisions can obscure that fact. So I just want to remind you that what Paul is saying here about doing nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, this is simply a continuation of the very same argument that he made last week when he was talking about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes those very words. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul was reminding the Philippians that what they once were is no longer, that they have become something else, that they have become new creations in Christ. And he puts this in a, in a slightly different way in Ephesians, but it's very dramatic. He says to the Ephesian Christians, and this would apply to the Philippians as well, the same Greco-Roman culture, Paul says to the Ephesians, remember what you once were. 
You were separated from Christ. You were foreigners to the covenants and to the promises. You were without God and you were without hope in the world. That's what you were prior to coming into a relationship with Christ. But then he goes on to say, but you who were once far off, distant, removed, alienated, isolated, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, Paul is saying the same thing to the Philippians. He said, you once followed the ways of this world. You once followed the patterns and the standards of this world. But now, having come into a relationship, into a fellowship with Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. It is a royal family, and therefore you are, be, you are expected to begin to live a life worthy of this new status. You can no longer live the way you once lived. You must live in an entirely new way. And he sort of fleshed that out for us. He helped us to understand what it means to live a different life, a life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. First of all, he reminds us that we are representatives of the king. We are Christ's ambassadors. Just as a member of the royal family represents the monarch, so there is a sense in which you and I, as members of Christ's family, represent our monarch, our sovereign, our king. Now, what this means, of course, is that we are going to end up walking apart from the world. We're going to adopt an entirely different standard of living, a whole new set of priorities. And as we all know, as long as you are in step with the world, the world is going to love you. Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because it would recognize you as one of its own. But because you are not of the world, because you have been taken out of the world, Jesus said the world will hate you. You know, that's the whole reason why the world hated Jesus. It's one of the reasons why the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, it's one of the reasons why they despise Jesus is because he walked out of step. And that's what you and I are called to do. We are to walk out of step with the world. And the result of that, Jesus is very clear, will sometimes be persecution from the world. That's why in verse 28 he says, and not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Jesus acknowledges the fact that there will be opposition. Jesus was a realist. That's one of the things that I find so refreshing about the Christian faith, is that Jesus makes no bones about it. You will face difficulty in the world. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. He didn't say it's likely you're going to have it or it's, it's probable. He was emphatic. He said, you will face difficulty, opposition, hostility from the world. So we are to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That is to say, we are to live a life worthy of our king and our sovereign, ambassadors for him in the world, his emissaries, the result of which will be scorn by the crowd. But nevertheless, Paul says, in the midst of this persecution, we do have a family. We've been part of the family, and we are to be united as a family. That's how he puts it in verse 27. Again, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we are to live a life worthy of the calling to which we are called. That's the first thing. We are to expect 
rejection from the world as a consequence, even though we are called to be salt and light in the world, even though the message that we bear is the message that the world needs, nevertheless, the world is going to hate us because we are different. Now, we learn this very early on. Even as children, we know that children who are different are oftentimes bullied and persecuted and abused. Well, it's no different when you become an adult. In fact, that persecution oftentimes becomes intensified because we are different. And nevertheless, Paul says, we do have a family. We are to come together as a family, being united in the truth. And here's the third thing that is involved in living a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Paul says you are to live not for yourself alone, but for the sake of others. So you can see being a Christian, living a life worthy of the high calling, the new status that we have can be a difficult thing. It is a blessed thing, and there are many blessings and benefits that we gain from it, but nevertheless, it can be difficult. And Paul acknowledges that. Nevertheless, he says, do nothing from rivalry, chapter 2, verse 3, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just this past week, I had a conversation with a member of the congregation uh, and she came to me with a theological question. And it was an excellent question. She said, I understand that in order to be a Christian, the Holy Spirit has to dwell within me. She says, I know he has to take up residence in my life. But how do I know? How can I be certain of my salvation? How can I know that the Holy Spirit actually dwells within me? Now, actually, I said that was a good question. It's actually the most important question that anybody can possibly ask. How do I know for certain that I am saved? If Christ were to call me home today through some sudden tragedy, how do I know that I would be accepted into the kingdom of God? How do I know that I have the Spirit? Well, my response to her was, you know you have the Spirit in your life if you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. In other words, there is evidence of the Spirit's presence in a believer's life. And one of those evidences is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and keep your finger there in Philippians and turn to Galatians for just a moment. And there, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. And this is very important, especially if you have any doubt whatsoever as to whether or not you're a Christian, as to whether or not you actually have that kind of saving relationship with Christ. You may have been a churchgoer your entire life, but you're not really sure that you have that life-saving relationship with Christ. Well, if that's the case, turn to Galatians and look at what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's interesting that he describes it as fruit. He doesn't describe it as the works of the Spirit. He describes it as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that's very important. And this is an image that is not only used by Paul, it's also used by Jesus. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, which we've already studied, talked about, you will know them by their fruits. I pointed out when we were studying, Matthew, that you don't have to be an expert in horticulture. You don't have to be an expert on plants or trees to recognize an apple tree or a pear tree or an orange tree or a lemon tree. 
you know the tree by its fruit. And what's more, if you plant an apple tree for the purpose of getting fruit and it doesn't produce fruit, what's that tree worth? Apple trees are not particularly good shade trees. They're much better trees. If you want to have shade tree, plant an ash tree. But a fruit tree is designed for one purpose, to produce fruit. And if it doesn't produce fruit, that generally means that something is wrong with it. Now, it is true that sometimes the, the fruit tree will produce lots of fruit, a bumper crop. Sometimes it will produce only a few pears or a few apples or a few oranges. In which case, what needs to happen is that it needs to be pruned. But the point is that it should bear fruit. Jesus made this very point to his disciples. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. You know, a tree that is healthy does not have to work at producing fruit. It's something that happens automatically. If the tree is healthy, it will produce fruit. So Paul says, if you want to know if the Spirit is present in your life, ask yourself, is your life producing the fruit of the Spirit? That's how you know you're in a healthy relationship with Christ. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? He defines it there in Galatians. He says it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the signs of the Spirit's presence in a person's love, life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, this person followed up with an excellent question. They said, well, what if you have a few of those, but not all of them? Now, what is interesting here is that Paul doesn't describe this as the fruits of the Spirit, he describes it as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, he lists any number of things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. But he describes it in the singular, not in the plural. In other words, it's like a clump of grapes. It's not as though I get love and you get joy, somebody else gets peace, somebody else gets patience, somebody else gets kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. No, it's the clump. The fruit of the Spirit is all of those things. How do you know that Christ's presence is in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit? If you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the whole bunch. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's rather daunting. My, my goodness, I, I don't really know if I have all of that. Well, ask yourself this question. Was there anyone in history who actually possessed all of those things? And the obvious answer, there was really only one person who ever actually possessed all of those things all the time. And that was Christ himself. Jesus possessed that absolute super love. He had joy not just happiness, but, but joy, which is not contingent upon our circumstances. He had peace. That was one of the things that people found so attractive about Jesus. Even in the bleakest of circumstances, even in the midst of the storm at sea, he had serenity. He had patience. He had to have patience to live with the disciples for three years because no matter how hard he taught them, they never seemed to get it. He had kindness. 
He looked at the people and he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had goodness. He had faithfulness. He had gentleness. Jesus had self-control. He possessed all of these things in superabundance. So when we say the fruit of the Spirit, what we're really talking about here is a Christ-like character. What we should be asking ourselves is this. If I have the Spirit in my life, if I claim to have the Spirit in my life at least, is my life reflective of the life of Jesus Christ? That's what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit. It means to be Christ-like. Now, again, there may be those areas in your life that need work. You may have some joy, you may have some peace, but you may not have patience. You may not have kindness. Love is something that you struggle with, particularly love of those with whom you differ. Well, if that is the case, you can pray for Christ-likeness. And the promise is that the Father will produce that in you. I mean, that's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And if you're not bearing enough fruit, my Father will prune you. I pointed this out to you before. If you know anything about grapes, and some years ago, my wife and I actually took a trip out to California. I was doing a wedding out there, and we visited Napa and Sonoma Valley, and we visited a number of the large vineyards, and I learned a little bit about grape cultivation while we were out there. I learned that in order to produce grapes, you have to be sure that there aren't too many leaves. There are these things on a vine called sucker shoots. And what they do is they draw off all of the nutrients that would otherwise go to producing fruit. So uh, you can have a, a vine that is very leafy, but very few grapes. And so what you have to do is you have to cut off the sucker shoots, all of those things that would draw away from you the nutrients that are necessary in order to produce the fruit. Well, there are sucker shoots in your life and mine, those things that would draw off the nutrients, the time, the energy that we would normally put into spiritual matters, they get drawn off onto other things. And those are things that we have to take out of our lives. They have to be pruned. They have to be cut out of our lives. You know, one of the things that oftentimes is a sucker shoot in lives today are these devices that we have. Your cell phone, for example. You can spend all of your time just sort of scrolling through all of the things on Facebook you can scroll through eBay, you can scroll through all of the various things, you can be on Twitter, you can be on all of these different devices and all of these different platforms, instead of what? Instead of actually opening the Word of God and studying or spending time in prayer. So there are certain things that we can do in our lives. We can cut off these sucker shoots that would otherwise draw away the nutrients that might be used to produce fruit. But the point here that Paul is making is that if we are really going to be in a relationship with Christ, our lives, as we grow in age, ought to be growing in grace and reflective of Christ-like behavior. So that's what it means. And part of this Christ-like behavior is living for others. 
It's because Jesus did have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that he did not live for himself. And that's what Paul is getting at in this passage that we have before us. That's what he means when he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And it's interesting, he goes on immediately from that in verse 5 to say, so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. Paul is saying Christ-like behavior is the sign of the Spirit's presence in your life. Now, in order to understand how Christ behaved, it's also important to understand how the world behaves, how the world thinks. And the world thinks in a very different way way. The world is not the least bit interested in the well-being of others. The world is interested in one thing only, itself. You're all familiar with the story from antiquity, the story from mythology of Narcissus. Narcissus was a man who went down to a pool of water one day, a handsome young man, and for the first time saw his own reflection in the water and fell in love with himself and perished as a consequence. Well, we are filled with a world of narcissists, people who are in love with self. In fact, it's even encouraged. In fact, it's even justified. Richard Dawkins came out with a book some years ago. It made a huge splash in the culture entitled The Selfish Gene. Basically, what he was saying was that this sense of selfishness, this, um, this concern for self-well-being, this is actually hardwired into our biology, into our genes, into our genetic makeup. This is the foundation of evolutionary theory, the survival of the fittest. It's only the fittest that are going to survive. Everyone else is going to perish. And we see this clearly everywhere. Time Magazine a few years ago had a, a cover story about millennials and Generation Z entitled the Me, Me, Me Generation. Just think about the photographs we take. We call them selfies. We're obsessed with the self. It's the triumph of the ego. That's the way the world thinks. The world is not concerned with anyone else. The world is concerned with what? Number one. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness. You know, this is really, in some respects, always been there, but it seems to have, I think in recent years, been intensified more than ever. Some of you can perhaps remember 1960 when John F. Kennedy stood and delivered his inaugural address. It was a famous speech. And in that speech, John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And that was a message that resonated with the bulk of the American people in 1960. Now, John F. Kennedy, of course, was a part of that World War II generation. He had served in the Navy during World War II, had actually been decorated, he'd been in combat, He'd commanded a famous PT boat, PT boat 109. 
And he came out of that generation that understood that it's not about self. There is something greater than self. In this particular instance, the nation. And so when he spoke to the people, what he said echoed in the hearts of the nation. That's right. It's, there's something bigger than me. There's something more important than self. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Well, let me ask you this question. If a president of the United States was to stand and deliver those very same words today, do you think that many people today would agree with them? And do you think that many people would understand them? Many people are of the mind today that it's not what I can do for the country, it's what the country, it's what the government should be doing for me. Now, that is a radical shift that has taken place in just 50 years. And that is the way our world thinks. And it's not something that is the pattern of the American people. This is something that we are seeing more and more in Western culture today. That the most important thing is the triumph of self. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that we are not to live for self. Paul says Jesus' mind was to think of others before he thought of self. <laughs> so you have this contrast, if you will, between the two princes. The prince of this world on the one hand and the prince of peace on the other. Now, when I talk about the prince of this world, what am I referring to? Well, keep your finger there in Philippians for a moment and turn to Ephesians. Ephesians is the book that immediately precedes this one, so it's not hard to find. And in Ephesians, we're going to look at chapter 2. And here is what Paul says. He's reminding the Ephesians of what they once were. He says, and as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Who's the prince of the power of the air that he's referring to here? Obviously, it's the devil. It's Satan that he's referring to. He said, we all once followed Satan. That's what he means when he says, we were sons of disobedience. We lived according to our own passions, carrying out the desires of our bodies, our minds. We were by nature children of wrath. So Paul says that's what we once were. Now, we've become something else in Christ, but that's what we once were. And what he's saying is that everyone, apart from Christ, is following the prince of this world, whether they recognize it or not. Now, very few people in our culture today would actually say that they're following the devil. But Paul says that is exactly what is happening. If they're not following him directly, they're following him indirectly because they have adopted his standards. What is the standard of the prince of this world? The prince of the air? It's very powerfully described for us in the book of Isaiah. If you go back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet speaks of the fall of Lucifer. 
Lucifer or Satan, as you know, was one of the great angels. He was the most glorious of all the angels, but he fell from grace. And why did he fall? Well, Isaiah describes it in chapter 14, verses 12 and falling. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. That's how Satan was described, as the day star, the son of the dawn. He said, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You were once preeminent. There was a sense in which you were second only to the Godhead. But the problem for Satan was what? He was not satisfied with being number two. The prophet goes on. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That is why Satan fell, because he wanted to be number one. He wanted to be first. He wanted to be preeminent. He basically declared war on God. He wanted to kick God off the throne and put himself there. And that is exactly the temptation that he used with man. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll recall that the serpent, Satan in disguise, comes to the man and to the woman and he encourages the woman to eat of the tree, the tree that was the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And when the woman said, no, we must not eat of the tree, what was the argument that Satan used to entice her? He said, ah, but God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. In other words, you will be the master of your own fate. You'll be the captain of your own destiny. You will no longer be subservient you will be preeminent. You will be number one. That is what we're told. Many of us have been raised to believe that number two matters for nothing. The only place that matters is number one, and you need to do everything in your power to be number one. That is the attitude, my friends, of the prince of this world, and that's why we know that Satan is in control of the world. It's because that is exactly how the world thinks. I will ascend. I will go up. I will be first. But Paul says, contrast that with the attitude of the Prince of Peace. Contrast that with the attitude of Christ Jesus. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. He's saying, look, if you are followers of Jesus Christ, if you are children of God, then reflect that in your lives. And what was the attitude of Christ? Verse 16, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Why did Satan fall? Because Satan wanted to go up, up, up. The Prince of Peace, on the other hand, came down. The example of Jesus, you see, is not self-interest. It is the concern for others. 
mean, if you think about that, every Sunday when we say the creed, this is what we are suggesting. We say, who for us men and for our salvation did what? He came down. He came down. Now, when you listen to Paul's words here, and this is oftentimes referred to as the great hymn of kenosis, but it's an example of humility. And what Christ is saying is this. He had all of the glory that was God's. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ was very God of very God. Just what we say every Sunday when we stand to say the creed. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. By him all things were made. And without him was not anything made that was made. That is who Christ is. He had the best. I've sometimes pointed out that in our culture, you and I are willing to give up something good, provided that we know that something better is on the horizon. You know, you're willing to give up a good house if you can afford to buy a better house. You're willing to give up a good car, provided you can get a better car. Sometimes people are willing to give up a good spouse because they think they're going to get a better one. But the way we operate is we let go of good things in order to get something else. But Paul's point here is that Jesus Christ was in very nature God. That's what he's saying in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. We're willing, as I said, to give up something good if we know there's something better coming along. He said, but Christ had the best. There was nothing better. And yet he did what? He let it go. Now that is so contrary to the way we think. Why would you let go of the best? That's what we're working for. That's what we're striving for. That's what it's all about. That's what it means to win. The one who dies with the most toys wins. And Paul says, Jesus had it all, but he gave it up. Perhaps you've heard me use this illustration before. In the 19th century, before there were tranquilizers and that sort of thing, when zoos were just becoming popular, particularly in the British Empire, there was a very ingenious way that they would catch monkeys for the zoo. Monkeys are very curious creatures. Monkeys are also very greedy creatures. And apparently what they would do is they would go into the jungle where the monkeys were, normally the chimps and so forth, and they would take a narrow-throated jar and fill it with colorful beads, marbles, for example, and tether that jar to the ground. And the monkeys would come along, see these bright-colored beads, be very interested in them, and stick their paw down in that narrow-throated jar and grab a handful of the marbles. But then having made that fist, try to pull themselves out of that narrow-throated jar, and their hand would be caught. Quite literally, it's the image of a child with his hand caught in the cookie jar. Now, the monkey's trapped. The only thing he needs to do in order to be freed is what? Let go. As long as he lets go, he's free. But monkeys are so greedy, refuses to let go. And what would happen is that the trapper would come along, scoop him up, break the jar, and carry the monkey off in a sack. 
Well, if you think about it, that's the way we human beings are, always holding on to things, always grasping on to things, always wanting more, and never really satisfied. We have an insatiable desire to have more, to more of one thing or the other. And what Paul is saying is how different that is from the example of Christ who had it all, but let it go. Who instead of going up was already at the highest pinnacle, instead he came down. And instead of desiring to be sovereign Lord of the universe, which is what he was and which is what mankind wants, you will be like God, in charge, in control, he does what we're told he took the form of a servant. Now, the Greek word here that is translated as servant is a very interesting word. It is the word doulos. In some translations, it's rendered bond servant. Another translation would be slave. He who was Lord, he who was master, became a slave. He took the form of a servant. What was the thing that Jesus did on the night before he was betrayed? When all of his disciples left him, when all of them ran away, when Peter denied him three times, what, was Je what did Jesus do on that very night following that meal we call the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's communion? What did he do? We're told that he got down on his hands and his knees, and he who was the Lord of glory washed the feet of his disciples. And in so doing, he said, I am setting you an example he who would be greatest among you must be the servant of all. He became a slave, born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and he became obedient. That's another aspect of Christ's character. He was obedient. Most of us, by nature, are rebellious. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, nobody telling us how to live. The government's not going to impose restrictions on us. We're going to do our own thing. It is in our nature to rebel. But Jesus was obedient. And not only obedient, but we're told obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that death on the cross may not mean as much to us as it would have been to people living in Paul's day. But there was no more humiliating way to die than by means of crucifixion. This was a punishment that was reserved only for the dregs of society. I probably pointed out to you before that Roman citizens could not be crucified. Tradition holds that the Apostle Paul was not crucified. Now, Peter was. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified upside down but Paul was not crucified. Crucifixion was designed to be a painful, horrific death, oftentimes drawn out over the course of many days, and the bodies were often left hanging there on the cross that the wild animals might come in from the country and rip the flesh from the bones. It was a terrible, horrific way to die. It was meant to be a public spectacle. In the same way that hanging pirates down at White Point Gardens here in Charleston was designed to be an example to anyone who would dare to defy the authorities. The reason why Paul could not be crucified was because this was considered to be 
too terrible for a Roman citizen. So even if a Roman citizen had done something that was worthy of death, a capital crime, nevertheless, because they were Romans, they would be given a lesser sentence in terms of death. They would be beheaded, something quick, something that would be painless, but not the death of the cross. And yet Paul is saying Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death. He who was immortal became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. And it's because he humbled himself. It's because he gave up all that he had. It's because he let go as opposed to holding on and went to the lowest of places. God then brought him to the highest of places and gave him that name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is what Christ did. And what Paul is saying to the Philippians, and by consequence to us, is that if we are the followers of Jesus Christ, we are to do the same. That's what that word Christian means. It means little Christ. The the believers were first called Christians at Antioch in Syria. And it means little Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just a, a casual follower of the Lord. To be a Christian means to be a little Christ. Your life should be a walking billboard for Christ. And that's why Paul says this was the attitude of Jesus Christ And he says, if you claim to be his followers, if you claim to have his spirit within you, you should have the same mind among yourselves. Verse 5 again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, this, as I said, is countercultural. The world does not understand it, and it is difficult. I would be lying to you if I've said that I have mastered this. (laughs) There's still a lot of pruning that needs to take place in my life. But nevertheless, this is what it means to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. There's a great illustration of this from the life of Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a Chinese evangelist in the post-World War II era. Uh, He had been converted, and uh, he was a wonderful evangelist, very gifted. Um, He would eventually be arrested by the communist authorities, and he would be put to death. He would become a martyr for the Christian faith. But he tells the story of how on one occasion he was dealing with a man who was a Christian farmer. He was a rice farmer, and as a rice rice farmer, uh, he had a number of fields, and the fields were up on the hillside. If you know anything about rice farming, that's often the case. But there was a farmer that had a field beneath his. Now, this farmer had access to the water. And so he would allow the water to come down. You need lots of water in order to grow rice. Same here in South Carolina. So what would happen is he would let the water come down and flood his fields. But then he was generous enough to allow the water to flow down into his neighbor's field so that the neighbor could also farm. But the neighbor apparently was not satisfied with that. And so he would wait until the first man's field was all 
flooded. And then this neighbor below would go up and release the water into his own field. And he did this over and over and over again. And the Christian farmer, the first farmer, whose field was highest up the hill, he didn't know what to do about this. And he was very concerned. I mean, he was generous with his water, but, but this man was stealing his water first. So he didn't know what to do. And he went to this small church. It was only a house church there in China at the time. And, and he shared this with the believers. And they made a suggestion to him. They suggested that instead of filling his own field first and allowing the water then to flow down to his neighbor, that he actually fill his neighbor's field first. Now, it was his water supply. But to let go of his pride, let go of his status, of his position, of his rights, and flood his neighbor's field first. And then, and only then, flood his own. And that is exactly what the man did. And eventually, the neighbor below came to him and asked him why. Why did he do that? And this gave the Christian farmer an opportunity to share the faith, to say, because this is the pattern of my Lord and Savior. This is exactly what Christ did for us. He did not think of self first. He thought of others first. And Watchman Nee said that second farmer eventually became a Christian and joined the church because of the sacrifice of the first. You see, to follow the example of Jesus Christ is not to put ourselves on top, but to put ourselves on the bottom. Here should be the pattern for our life because it was the pattern of Christ's life. To put God first, others second, and yourself last. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Now, most of us do it in a very different order. It's me first, God second, and others last, or me first, others second, and God last, but me first. But the pattern that Jesus sets for us, the mind we are to have among ourselves, is to put God first, Christ preeminent above all things, to put others before ourselves, and to put ourselves last. How do I know if I have the Spirit of Christ within me? How do I know that the Holy Spirit dwells within my life? This is how you know, Paul says. If your life is a reflection of the life of Christ, if your priorities are the same as Christ's priorities. So let me ask you this question today. Are you putting God first above all things? Or does God come somewhere else down the line? And if God is first in your life, are other people second? Are you willing to put the interests, the well-being, the welfare of others before yourself? This is what it means to have a Christ-like character. It is not to go up. It is ultimately to come down. That's the powerful message that Paul is invoking here. Now, Paul goes on to say, because Christ was willing to do this, he was exalted. He gave up the glory 
but he received the glory back. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is this King of glory? One of the wonderful things about this passage from Philippians chapter 2, this letter that really we think of as a practical letter about encouragement and joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of this very practical letter, Paul gives us some of the highest theology in the New Testament. In talking about Jesus Christ and the attitude, the mind of Christ, he shows us who Jesus really is. And I just want to spend a, a few minutes here. We don't have much time, only about five minutes left. But I just want you to think about what Paul is saying here. It's one thing to say, oh, yes, Christ did these things for us. Yes, Christ came down. But it's when you really begin to grasp who Jesus is that what he did becomes all the more extraordinary. Paul says he was in the very nature God. He uses two words here that I think are very important, beginning at verse 6. Who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word that is used here for form is the Greek word morphe, or morph. And what it means is that Christ was both outwardly and inwardly God. Now, that takes a moment for us to step back and just let that sink in for a minute. When you think of God, just, just God, the name God, what do you think of? Well, most people think of the one who, who calls all things into existence by the sheer power of his word, ex nihilo, out of nothing, the one who governs and sustains the universe, that keeps things going, the, the planets rolling in their orbits, the, the spheres and so forth. It is God who holds all things together. And when we think of Jesus Christ, what do we think of? We think of the one who died upon the cross to reconcile us to God. But what Paul is saying here is that he was in the very form, the morph of God. He was both inwardly and outwardly divine, equal with the one who created all things, equal with God the Father, in no way diminished, but equal fully, outwardly and inwardly, the picture, the image of the Father. The other word that he uses here is the word isos, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. For those of you who are uh, chemi chemists or, or majored in chemistry, perhaps in college, uh, this is the word from which we get the term isomer. An isomer is a molecule or two molecules that have the exact same composition and the same chemical weight, but a different combination, a different structure. So they are equal and yet they're different. The molecules are made up of the same thing. They have the same weight, but the way they're built is in a different order. And as a result, they are different. That's the word that Paul uses here. Jesus is both outwardly and inwardly one with the Father, and yet, while he is equal with the Father, he is nevertheless different 
from the Father. Now, if that is a little mind-blowing, it's not surprising. This is a bit of a mystery. But that is what Paul is describing. That is what he's saying about Jesus Christ. He is outwardly and inwardly one with the Father, and therefore worthy of all glory. This is one of the expressions you find in the New Testament, the glory of God. What Jesus had was the glory of God. Uh, the Greek verb dukeo became a noun over the course of time. It became the word doxa. It's the word from which we get doxology. And what it literally means is something or someone worthy of praise. That's one of the reasons why when we stand on Sundays and we sing the doxology, what do we say? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly prose. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ was outwardly and inwardly equal with the Father, the same and yet different from the Father. But because he was equal, though different, he is nevertheless worthy of the same thing the Father is worthy of. That is to say, all glory, all honor. Now, that's an extraordinary thing, because if you go back into the Old Testament, the only one who is to, to receive that kind of praise, that kind of honor, that kind of adulation is God himself. In Psalm 24, the question is asked, who is this king of glory? And the answer that is given is the Lord, the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. What Paul is saying is that God himself, the highest of all beings, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sustainer of the universe, the one who gives breath and life to every living creature, came down, humbled himself, took the form of a slave, and became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Who was willing to be humiliated. And so who are we as mere creatures who owe our very breath, the very next breath that we take from God himself? If God is willing to do that, how can we feel that we have a right to go up and be number one when he who is the Lord of the universe came down. Paul says that is what it means to lead a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's when we are willing to put God first, others second, to become servants of all. It's when we are willing to take the high place and leave it and to come to the low place at the table that God takes those who are lowly and despise the things that are not and raises them up that he might bring to naught the things that are. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, 
and took the form of a servant. God grant that we might decrease, that we might put God first, other second, and ourselves last, that our lives might truly reflect the high calling to which we have been called as the children of God. Let us pray. Father, it is so counter to our nature. It is so counter to our culture to put ourselves last. We are taught from the, the youngest age to always want to be number one. We are always taught that the whole universe revolves around us. It's all about me. I'm number one. And yet we are called to follow the example of your son, Jesus Christ, who had the very best but let it go for us men and for our salvation. Grant that we may live a life worthy of this calling to which we have been called. For Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you. Thank you all. Great to see you. Deep stuff here in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, but wonderful stuff as well. Next week, we'll continue our look at this subject of the glory of God, the nature of Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory. I look forward to seeing you very soon. Take care. Be safe.